Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather with your beloved flock to open up the scriptures, to encourage and exhort one another, to explore the glories of your nature and your attributes, your self-revelation, and your plan of salvation. We pray for the dear flock around the world that also listens on the Internet. We pray for their well-being. Bless them. Protect them. Encourage them. And help them find one another that they may share in the means of grace together. We commit this Sunday to you in Jesus' name. Amen? Okay. We are in 2 Corinthians and today we'll, I believe, finish chapter 10. I'm planning to finish chapter 10, but you never know what might happen. 10.15, 2 Corinthians 10.15. It says, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. Okay? Now, measure is and sphere and so on are carried over from verse 13. I had a, we covered that last week, but I realized I had printed a quote that I wanted to share with you from uh, this Dr. Martin on, on verse 13, because this 15 really is on the same topic, so it'll help. The word for service there, he says, is to a lot or to a portion. They're trying to figure out what this sphere means. To a lot or to a portion is evidently chosen to denote the assignment or a sphere of ministry according to God's purpose. Hence the tautological and seemingly unnecessarily piling up of a metra, metron, a merisen, metru. This word's for measure, 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 measure. To emphasize strongly the single point that Paul has not transgressed his allotted area of service, which has been apportioned to him by God. Hence he can boast says the object of his boasting is his missionary field is not what he has chosen for himself, but rather it is God has assigned it to him. The link idea is the verb metrain in verse 12. His competitors have a measuring rod, which they have used wrongly since they, it has served only to inflate their pride, getting the word measure in the previous verse, and their self-praise. They have failed to use the proper measure for Paul, the function of such a measure is to define and limit, delimit one's uh, uh, specific sphere. This definitely marked out. So Paul had been sent by God to Corinth and, and performed the ministry God called him to the, of preaching the gospel. And the result of that was the church. And then later, later comes the interloopers who decided to jump into Paul's sphere and brag about how much better they are than Paul was and try to discredit him in the eyes of the entire congregation in order to get their opportunity to do whatever kind of false teaching they wanted to bring. And it seems like there were several versions of what their error was, but um, we'll talk about that. We have talked about it, and we'll, we'll get to it more in chapter 13. So in verse 15, not boasting beyond our measure is a, taking up that same idea from verse 13. That is in other men's labors. So in other words, Paul's not doing like those guys did. He's not going to go somewhere and you know, mess up some church that had already been 
founded by someone else's ministry. But with the hope that as your faith grows, we will, within our sphere, enlarge even more by you, be enlarged even more by you. So they are, on, uh, on the other hand, had no qualms about claiming higher status in a congregation they did not found. But Paul, in, in humility, is forced to boast just to defend the gospel. And he says that he wants their support that, they might be, that he might be enlarged even by them. He wants to see the church together supporting one another. He wants to settle a problem. So let's go to verse 16. So as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. Now, turn with me to Romans 15, starting with verse 24. Romans 15, beginning with 24. And it shows what, he, what his desire was. We don't know that this ever actually happened. We, we just know that he wanted to do this. Uh, Romans 15, 24. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a little while. But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them, for the, the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things. They are indebted to minister to them and also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way by way of you to Spain. Well, there's no proof that ever happened, that Paul ever actually made it to Spain. Yes. But even Paul's letter to the Romans was an acknowledgement that someone had been there before him yep. and that he was just giving his advice in addition to whatever they had heard from somebody else because he didn't found the church. He's acknowledging that he didn't found the church, that he has, this is what yep. he's given to God, but he's, he's, not, he, he, he's not the same. He didn't birth that church at all. Yeah, a couple things. Keith, last week I was trying to recount, remember you and I were talking about why Acts doesn't really actually say anything about Paul giving them the gift? We had a theory, so I don't know if I got it right. But well, the whole thing with the money theory. is that Luke is trying to give a, in writing Acts, is giving a, a narration to convey a message. And when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he meets with the apostles, including James, and everybody's glorifying God that the gospel's gone out, but James is pretty concerned because we have many, we have tens of thousands who are believers and zealous for the law. And they meant the law of, the law of the Moses. Ju- 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 the law of Moses. So now take a, you know, we have these people that have taken a vow. Why don't you pay their expenses and go to the temple and help them out? And when Paul goes to the temple, all the heck breaks loose and, uh, he ends up being pilloried and is going to be torn apart by these people who are zealous for the law. Presumably, there may have there's, been tens, there's tens of thousands of these Christians. Yeah. And the, what's never stated and never talked about there is Paul's delivery of this gift that you hear so much about in Corinthians and all the other parts of the, it was his epistles. It doesn't document that it was given. And I think the reason is, is Luke doesn't want to make 
the Jews look worse than what they already are. Because if you had tens of thousands of Jewish believers that are zealous for the law, it appears when you read the narrative that those are the, likely the ones that are castigating Paul and want to kill him and persecute him, which would be consistent with even the Galatians, the, the kind of the Judaizers, why Peter would be afraid of the Judaizers, and the Judaizers are very, very wicked. And you had uh, the only time it really comes up again in the gift is when Paul's talking to Festus or Felix later on in Acts, and he says, I came down to give alms. Yeah, he said he came to give alms, and it never mentioned what happened. And so he gave the alms, but they still beat him up. Yeah, they gave the alms, but it didn't do any good. They were still, it, it didn't do what he hoped it would do, which would unify the church so there wouldn't be a Jewish church and a, and a Gentile church. So the Judaizers were something else. I mean, they were very, very much the biggest enemies Paul ever faced. Yeah, well, what took care of them was the destruction of Jerusalem. But they just could not understand the idea that it wasn't binding anymore to keep the law of Moses. They would not accept that. And they, as I said, they're still around today. You can still find Judaizers. They're still writing books. They're still starting churches and so on. Now, so this here, verse 16, the reason I read Romans is because it talked about his desire to go regions beyond, which he hoped even all the way to Spain. Acts ends with Paul imprisoned in Rome, but by piecing together information in the prison epistles in First and Second Timothy, there is a strong possibility that there's another missionary journey that, that Paul went on that's not documented because it happened after the end of Acts. End of Acts. It's very possible that that's the case. So that we don't know about. Okay, I had one quote for this one. 491. This is from Barnett. From Paul's viewpoint, says Barnett, it would be helpful if he left behind a strong center of faith in the Achaean capital. The bonds of fellowship and the support in prayer would be of great benefit as he moved out of that region toward the west. We may discern two mission groups with competing aims, one associated with Paul, the other with his opponents, each seeking to spring from a secure base of ministry to other places. The one was concerned with proclaiming Christ and winning allegiance to him, whereas the other was concerned with Judaizing Gentiles who had already been evangelized. That was the biggest threat to the early church. The biggest threat was that the Judaizers would prevail and destroy the gospel. And they would go, their target were people that were already converted. And they'd go in where Paul had preached the gospel and then say, if you don't keep the law of Moses, if, you don't, if you're not circumcised, if you don't follow the food laws and the Sabbath laws, every kind of law that's important to us, then you cannot be a Christian and you cannot be saved. That was their message. And they're still around. And they're very, it's interesting that when people get caught up in that, how, uh, how would you say it? They're virulent. virulent? <laughs> Am I saying that right? They're, they're nasty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, it's like they're just angry, and they'll, they'll just pound on you and pound on you and pound on you because I, I don't know what it is. They're, they're so stuck on their little cultish idea that they have to enforce it on everybody else. And, the, in fact, they're so adamant, sometimes I wonder what's motivating them is misery loves company. You know, 
If, if, you're, if you so enjoy worshiping on Saturday, then why don't you just do it? Why are you pounding on me? But what do you care? Well, we can't stand the idea of somebody's not like us. That's, that's what it boils down to. 2 Corinthians 10:17. Because I really, this whole thing is pretty well one concept today. And I don't want to start 11, chapter 11 until next week. So it says, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Now, this is an allusion to an Old Testament passage. Not a direct citation of it, but allusion. And it's a really cool passage. So, uh, Angie, do you want to do one? We'll go this way. So, be warned. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and I'm Pauline's sister. Shirley. Shirley. Charlene, that's it. I knew that. I knew that. Isaiah 45, 25, and Jen, could you do Romans 5, 11? And uh, let's start back here, too. Pat, do you want to do Galatians 6, 14? And Beth, 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31. I gave you a lot of work. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31. Okay, the first one is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Really cool verses. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Yeah, great passage. Don't boast in what you think. Back to our theme, don't compare one with the other and then say, oh, look how great this one is or how bad that one is. So I'm stronger than somebody else or I'm um, smarter than somebody else or I'm richer than somebody else, all that kind of stuff. Don't even think about that. But if you really want to boast of something, boast that you know the Lord and that you know his nature, that he's full of loving kindness. He talks about that said that key attribute of God that's revealed on, the, on Mount Sinai. Boast that you know the Lord. So when it talks about boasting in the Lord, the boast is that our God is the God and that we are so uh, been shown so much grace that we actually can even know him. How wonderful it is that we can even know the Lord. So that was Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Very good passages to know. And it likely was in Paul's mind here when he wrote this boasting in the Lord. Now Isaiah 45, 25, Charlene. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be, shall be justified and shall glory. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I'm going to talk about that. This morning's sermon is on the third commandment, to not take the Lord's name in vain. And who would have thought there's that much material about that in the Bible? I thought, well, that's just one verse. Maybe I'll have to do that and the Sabbath. And then I started studying, and by the time I'd done studying, I think, how am I going to do all of this in one sermon? I, it's just it's amazing how it all opens up to you. But one of the things in my studies, when I'm looking up these Hebrew words, is this word glory means heavy. Okay? It comes from a word that means heavy. And the reason it became glory was that in Hebrew, the, if a person was a person of dignity and honor and stature, they had heavy presence. 
you know, say like it was Caesar or somebody like that in society, that, okay, this person comes in with a weighty personage. Okay, well then, when God declares himself to be the glorious Yahweh, he is the one who's truly weighty. And to glorify God means that God weighs heavily upon us. Okay, I remember hearing David Wells um, speak one time after. I love his book, No Place for Truth. And, and in fact, he had a series of books. Now I think four of them, whatever. David Wells was speaking, and that's, that was his topic, that the, waiting, that the holiness of God and the glory of God is not weighing heavily enough upon us. That we take the fact that we might, that we know God, or think we know him, in a, not in a serious way. And that, I'm going to claim this morning, is taking the Lord's name in vain. We're going to see that. Okay, a little preview. I'm using the Hebrews technique of foreshadow, Dick. Yeah, you stick it in there. Okay. Oh, who was going to say something? Rich? Add a couple of verses to that, Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. I think this is just for our today, right now for All the right. church. For... I want to hear them. <laughs> For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's today's church. We have a horizontal relationship with God and not a vertical one. Wow. So he's now weighing heavily upon us. And when that happens, we always gravitate to some sort of works righteousness, like you said, Rich. That's where we'll go. Here's what I did. Here's what I can do, and so on and so forth. And the weightiness of God, I, as I was studying this, and I spent almost all week in the Old Testament using tools because I don't read Hebrew, which is a deficiency I should have never allowed to happen when I was a youth, but it's probably going to stay that way now. So, I, But I, the tools are so good now you can use it anyhow. You can learn it anyhow. And I was using the tools at my fingertips. This is just unbelievable. And at the very end, when you get to the end of the study, or if you ever, not really never get to the end of it, but when you get to the point where, okay, I think I see this, I think I get this, I think I get all the components that are all there in the Bible, the very end is this. The only way I'll ever not take the Lord's name in vain is if God does a work of grace. Because if you name the name of the Lord, you're His. And you're either glorifying Him by having Him weigh heavy upon you, or you're making vanity by Him taking Him too lightly. And you end up saying, Lord, you're going to have to do something for me because I'm not going to stand up here and say I'm glorifying you the way I should. Jen, you are very patient. <laughs> I promise you get to read that verse. <laughs> I was just going to say that this whole concept of boasting comes close to worship and the concept of idolatry because if I'm boasting in something else, there's a concept there that I'm not setting, taking, having no other gods before me. And going back to the first commandment, it's very, yeah. very related because yeah. if I'm boasting in myself and I'm setting myself up as an idol, my own works as an idol, or something else as an idol, instead of boasting in God who is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The more we know the attributes and nature of God and the holiness of God and the glory of God, 
the idea of boasting seems like the absurd. But what really makes sense is shaking in your boots a little bit. Okay. <laughs> and by the way, which is what happened when people saw Theophanes, they hit the ground. Okay, go ahead. The verse was Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, we've received reconciliation. And now we have Galatians 6.14, Pat. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Wow. Paul's not going to boast in anything but in the cross of Jesus Christ. Wow. Great verse. Okay, and then that's, there's a section in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31 that uh, I think really speaks to what we were just doing, and it's very much like the one of Jeremiah. So if you could go ahead, Beth, and read that. Start with, no, no, 27 to 31, just four verses. Or five, however that figures out. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ. Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God chose the base thing. So, here's the implication of being one of God's people. You didn't have anything going for you before. Because <laughs> he chose all those things that are n- nothing. So um, I heard MacArthur talking about that one time. It was, it was a great idea. And it, it's really thematic if you want to look at it through the Bible. Remember the whole Saul and David thing? Why did they originally decide they wanted a king? Because they wanted to be like the other nations, right? All right. That's why they wanted a king. Their motive was wrong. Now, God had Samuel warn them that, if you get the king, he's going to be nasty, he's going to tax you, he's going to put you, he's going to script you for your army, he's going to take your women, and he's going to do all this stuff. It's going to be really bad. That's okay, we want a king. And so he gives them one who's man's kind of idea. Taller, you know, this is Saul is the, the choice of the carnal, the flesh, the people who think that they have something going for them. And he was just what God said he would be. And then when it came time to choose David, remember, they, they couldn't believe the one that ended up being the choice because they brought out the oldest and this one, that one. Well, I had, no, some of these, is that it? Oh, we got this little guy out here watching the, the flock, but you don't want to even see him. And he becomes the king. So do you see how often that principle just keeps coming back up? And the, the, the choice of the second Born instead of the firstborn, when the first normally would have the rights of primogenitor, like with Jacob and Esau, and so on. You, you see a lot of these things where God reverses things in order to show that He's the one in charge of how this goes. All right? 
And so then if, he, if we end up participating by God's grace in what he's doing, we have every reason to glory in the Lord. And we have no reason to glory in the flesh. Okay. I guess that's pretty straightforward. Verse 18, 2 Corinthians 10, 18. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. Now, back in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 1, Paul talked about those, not himself, but others who required letters of commendation. He said they, they, they said letters of commendation. So they get important guys to say, all right, here, here's somebody, this is a great person, here's how great he is, you better listen to him. Now, Paul said, I don't have one of those letters of commendation other than you. You are my letter of commendation. What does he mean by that? Well, you exist as a church. I've preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've preached only Christ and him crucified to you. God used that foolish message of a crucified Jewish Messiah, and he made a church in Corinth, added you to it. There you are. I preach the gospel. That's all the letter of commendation I need. That's what Paul's saying. Now, it says here, the one who commends himself isn't approved. The word approved, the word approved, dokimas, it's an adjective here, uh, can mean, it has a fairly... It has a range of meaning, but in general, it either has to do with having been tested and shown to be genuine or the fact of being genuine or so on. So commending yourself doesn't make you genuine because God knows the heart. And the Lord commends someone, you can count on his assessment being correct. And the way Paul was commended by the Lord was the Lord used him to preach the gospel, and people were converted, and a church came into existence. Let me quote from Barnett again. The importance of this passage is threefold. First, Paul establishes that the spreading of the gospel is the priority of Christian ministry. Can we say amen to that? Yeah. The spreading of the gospel is the priority of Christian ministry. Absolutely it is. And if that gets off the front burner, then we know we've gotten totally misdirected somewhere. And we should go backtrack and find out where we got disconnected or dis- misdirected and repent and get back in the gospel. All right? Okay. In Paul's case, says Barnett, this meant the mission to the Gentiles to which he was called by God on the road to Damascus, as recognized by the missionary concordant of Jerusalem, A.D. 47. Second, Because the existence of another mission, that to the Jews, brought its own complications and tensions, accepted principles of cooperation were needed, as they continue to be in comparable situations. Third, self-commendation in Christian ministry is excluded. The Lord commends his servants for ministry by the fruits of their ministry. The fruits of the ministry, and that being... God's works of grace, and so on. And there's fruit. the term fruits has a fairly broad application. It has to do with the truth, the fruit, and sometimes it's used of character qualities. Sometimes it uses the results of gospel preaching that people are converted. Okay, let's go this way now. Keith, Proverbs 21.2, Troy, 1 Corinthians 4.5, and Alice, 2 Timothy 2.15. 
Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the hearts. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. You know, let's talk about that a moment. It's kind of a truism, isn't it? Can I talk about kings? Yeah, what's that? Or in the judges, in the time of the judges, it says every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, he was doing what was right in his own eyes. And it's always wicked. Every time they say that, it's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing. So doing what's right in your own eyes means you don't know what God said. Okay, you don't have special revelation. So you're just going by what you think. Now, the big problem we have today in society and in some ways in the church, sadly, is this whole issue of relativism and pluralism. Where now we're saying doing what's right in your own eyes is a virtue. Okay, in other words, if in your eyes Buddhism is what you see to be right, because it appeals to you, that it's virtuous to be a sincere Buddhist. Whether or not the claims of Buddhism are valid. Okay? And any other thing, that you, even within the Christian church, well, I want to believe this, or I want to believe that, or I want to have this or that. Well, everybody has a right to decide what they're going to do and what they're going to believe because their personal right to be right in their own eyes. Now, until such time as there is special revelation, God spoke, everybody does what's right in their own eyes, like in Judges, because that's all they know. It's, and as we've been saying, it's like Job's comforters in Job trying to figure out God with God having not said anything to them. And well, that makes so much sense out of Job because you really, you can spend all your time on why this guy say this and why this guy say this and trying to study all these arguments. Otherwise, you just look at the whole thing and say, well, this, could, this would go on forever until God shows up. That, that, the real point is they, they're never going to get anywhere. They're never going to figure it out because they're only seeing what's right in their own eyes. And God hasn't told them one thing. Then when God spoke, then Job says, oh, now I know. <laughs> and what did he find out? Well, God is sovereign over his own creatures and just believe me and trust me, and no purpose of thine can be thwarted. And so that was good. That's what they knew. So, dear ones, the greatest privilege that we have as a people is that we have God's Word. As far as just, what I mean, that we know God is the greatest, but we wouldn't know Him if we didn't have His Word. And what should be in a, we should always want to know what has God said. Now we're doing, the radio started, didn't it? Tomorrow. Yeah, the first, Hebrews 1 1 starts tomorrow at CICMinistry.org, oneplace.com. We got them synchronized now finally, so Derek's job's easier. I just one file name and it goes two places. Now, we're going through Hebrews, and Dick and I are, we're about through chapter 3 on our recording. And editing is a different thing because we seem to get the marble, marble mouth thing going. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow, um, the, the, the way Hebrew starts is just so powerful. It, it, it's amazing. And if you look at the Greek, the, the, the alliteration and stuff going on is even more powerful. And it starts, God having spoken in the fathers and their prophets of many portions of many ways. Those two words, portions of ways, sound the same, and they're the first two words in the sentence. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son who is heir of all things. And we spent almost the whole first radio show talking about the implications of that. 
That's what makes us not pagan. That's what makes us Christian. That's what makes us, uh, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, they, uh, it says this, what other people, what other people besides us has this great law? They understood them to be privileged above, themselves to be privileged above all people because God gave them his word. And you think of Psalm 119. The whole thing is about the privilege of the law of God, that we know what God said. Not just narrowing it to the law, but whatever God has said, his law, his ways, everything is revealed. It's a great privilege. It's a great privilege. And if ever it gets to be the case in a church anywhere where that's not seen as important, you are on the road to apostasy. Hebrews starts out, God spoke. And then right after that, it says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay? Warnings against apostasy, five of them in Hebrews. Listen to what God has said. So then people say, well, why do you spend all this time on Bible study? Because God spoke to us. And this is what he said. And if I don't know what he said, I'm just going to be a pagan. And being a pagan is not a good thing. <laughs> There's enough of them out there already. They don't need to be in the church, too. <laughs> we don't need to paganize the church. Gospel, gospel, gospel. What did he say? That's what we want to know. So, I hope you get a chance to listen to the Hebrews that we're going to do, and the people will gain something from it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the appointed time of judgment. But wait until the Lord comes, who will bring forth to light the, the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Yeah, don't go on judging before the time. I did an article once about what we can judge and what we cannot judge. And that verse is very important because it says that God will disclose the motives of men's hearts. So that's one thing we can't judge. It's before the time. Who's, who's the better teacher? I don't, I don't know that. Who, who is God going to reward more than who else? Who, I don't know that. It may be shocking when we find out, but it's before the time. These are things we can't know. So if we compare ourselves one to another and make judgments based on our idea who's better, that's before the time. That's what Paul was fighting in Corinth. They had personality cult going on. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the truth, the word of truth. All right. Now, that is very enlightening. Okay, in the light of everything we've been talking about. Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to show yourself approved. Now, that's something you can do now. Okay, the approval will be at the end. Okay, but we can know now that there's a likely case that we will be approved and to show ourselves to be somebody who would be approved. And how are we going to do that? Diligently study the word so that we handle the word of truth accurately. We can be absolutely assured that accurately and faithfully proclaiming the word of God and applying it to people's lives and applying it to our own lives and hearing it and talking about it coming in and going out and teaching it to our children, and learning instruction in righteousness, all those things that are there in the Word, that we can be sure that's something God approves of. Absolutely sure of that. 
We can't be sure he approves of our building program. Okay? We can't, we can't be sure that he approves of a lot of things we might decide to do. He gives us liberty to do different things. But we can be sure he approves of accurately handling the word of truth. And the thing that grieves my heart, and it started, this started in 1989, or actually before that, but in 89 we started a pastor's meeting from a lot of former pastor friends that we had in the charismatic movement in the early 80s, and we began to open up the scriptures and have different ones present position papers and just dig in and find the truth and apply it. And the thing that grieved me was that the pastors, for the most part, didn't want to do that in their own churches. They just didn't want to do it. They may be talking to a pastor about it, but they're not going to bring up theology in their churches, and they're not going to go there. And it frustrated me so much that I decided, by God's grace and encouragement from Dick Kuffel and our former friend Don Anderberg, to start writing Critical Issues Commentary. My, my idea was, I'm doing all this work anyhow, and I'm giving it to pastors, and they just put it in a circular file. So I'm just going to send, if they don't want to teach the flock what's true, I'll send it out and teach them myself. And that's how it started. Okay. And, and you know what? What's that? Uh, okay, good question. Let me repeat her question. I'll repeat it. Why didn't they want to? It's their job. I'll tell you why. I read it. Uh, Glenn, you sent me an article. That one by, from Spruill's uh, Table Talk. Yeah, good article. That article was saying that ministers can get, fall in love with the idea of their ministry. Okay. And, and what he meant by that was falling in love with the idea of being successful in your ministry and be seen to be successful by judged by some standards other than the one we just read in Timothy. Okay? And that, therefore, anything that might detract from that is seen as a negative. Okay? Right, from their status. Okay, so if they go into a congregation and begin contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints... And you got everybody under their son there that believes this, that, and the other thing in all different ways. You're going to have contention. You're going to have problems, and you're going to have people leaving, and you're going to be, have people get upset about it, and it'll upset the apple cart. Unless the congregation was built on solid exposition, expositionary preaching to start with, then they'll rejoice. They'll be glad you brought it in. But if it was founded on some other way, then you have your ministerial status in. Too weighing too heavy. Yes. One thing though is that one pastor that uh, north of here that uh, we had friends that went to his church and he forbade it was uh, a policy not to encourage exegetical Bible study, inductive Bible study because the Bible didn't say what he said the Bible said, and to have his congregation doing inductive Bible study would undermine his what he what yeah they actually forbade the congregation to do inductive Bible study. Because then they got educated and they started questioning the pastor. Now, one of the number one things I, find, I hear, but I, you remember I sent out CIC. We're, we're mailing the next issue. We are a little got a little late because of the holidays. What's going on with this week again? It's on how the church becomes pagan by adopting the pagan worldview. It does go to the people, and they do give it to their pastors, and the pastors get mad. So I guess it's doing what I wanted it to do. Now, I can understand 
let, let me share a little bit from my heart about my own experience, and I want to talk about something that happened this like, couple of weeks or this week. Anyhow, when I read that thing, Glenn, that you sent me, I remember myself struggling with those things, thoughts, and ideas myself, because at one point in my life. I felt like I was failing as a pastor based on just what was happening. People would leave the church. Just whatever criteria I was looking at, I just felt like I was failing. And I was young enough to think, okay, at this age, if I fail now, it's permanent. It's just not a good way to feel. I'm not thinking it's from God. I'm thinking it was my flesh. It was like, okay, I'm at the age where I'm supposed to be at the peak of my game and look at me. This is horrible. It's pathetic. And I went to hear Dr. John MacArthur, and I've told this story before, but some of you might be new. I went to hear Dr. John MacArthur, and he preached a sermon called Restoring the Disheartened Pastor's Joy. And his sermon was that the greatest privilege that God ever gave a man, ever, was the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And... That privilege is the greatest privilege and the greatest honor, even if nobody believes it when you preach it. And he, and he based his teaching out of Second Corinthians. And I sat there like I saw, you know, Epiphany or something. I just went, oh. I, I knew instantly why I was discouraged. I was worried about my status as being successful in the ministry. And that was the stupidest thought to ever get into anybody's mind. And it took John MacArthur and the Lord's, the Holy Spirit's conviction to give me a good kick. I said, what's wrong with you? You're preaching the gospel. Why aren't you happy? And I thought, yeah. And that started what happened that transformed us to what we are, and at least me, it changed my whole life. Never, I never got discouraged in the ministry again. Because now I know it doesn't, I don't need status. It doesn't, that means nothing. It's zero. It's nothing. The only thing that matters is that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out. And I'm sorry, I regret that it took me to 40, whatever, what was I, 45 years old for I, I understood that. I'm sorry I'm so dense. I'm sorry I'm slow. I, I don't know why I couldn't figure that out. But I'm glad God had a servant, John MacArthur, to help. How long ago was that? 96. <laughs> oh, you're trying to figure out how old I am? Shame on you. Oh, that was tricky. That was tricky. I said I would. <laughs> oh, that was, uh, no, that was just last year. <laughs> good, good one, Rich. I don't know. There's no astute uh, comment award, but <laughs> just astute reading one. But that was a good comment. This is a advertisement. Thursday night starts apologetics, and the first few will be logic. And some people say, well, I'm, is that going to be too hard for me? And I would say this. Just come and enjoy. You don't have to become a professional logician, but you can sort of see how the thing works. It's fun to see how it works, in my opinion, even if you don't think that's going to be your forte. I think it would be fun. Anyhow, help take up the chairs. We'll see you upstairs at 1030.